Why evangelize? Is the question that I'm going to put to you today. And looking at 2 Corinthians 5, the end of 5, beginning of 6. There's one thing that Christians and non-Christians often agree upon. That is, they don't like evangelism. They don't like selling. They don't like being a salesman. They don't like being sold to. They don't like pressure. So, when we ask the question, why evangelism? Why am I asking it? It's because I don't like the question, who should evangelise? The people who ask the question, who should evangelise, are asking really like Pharisees. They're saying, who should, not me, should I? I don't have to. Why do you ask the question, who should, except to find out why it is that you don't have to? Nobody else would ever ask such a question. So as soon as you have people asking who should evangelise, you know they don't want to, and they're trying to find wriggle room. Should every Christian evangelise, or should it only be left to ministers, or should it only be apostles, or it should only be those people called the evangelist, a phrase, a word that's only used two or three times in the New Testament. But I think the question's wrong. I think it's a Pharisaic question set up to avoid the, the answer, to get the answer you want. I prefer the question, why evangelise? It's a much simpler question to answer, and in the answering of it, it makes the who to evangelise completely ridiculous. Now, last night, we, well, yesterday morning, we, we finished on 2 Corinthians 5.10. Yeah. That's why I wanted the reading just to go back a little bit to 5.9. So, whether we're at home or away, in other words, whether we're in this world or the world to come, whether we're in this age or the age to come, whether we're here or there, our aim is to please the Lord. For that's whom we're proclaiming, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And our aim is to please the Lord. Because, for, verse 10, because we must all appear before him. I mean, in the end, we're all going to sit before the stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But we're not just going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Our lives for what they are will be seen for what they are, for the good or for bad. And we will receive in that appearing our judgment for good or bad. So we're not talking about our condemnation. We're talking about the wood-hay stubble of our lives being burnt up for its uselessness and our gold and silver and precious stones being purified for their worth and value. That is what we will all stand before. And so our aim is to please him because in the end it will, it will be seen. Our lives as Christians will be seen for what they are. Therefore, verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. See, we do not want to waste our lives. We want to work for the Lord. We don't want to run in vain. We wish to work for the Lord. And we wish that what we are doing will be seen as worthwhile. Knowing the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but the fear of the Lord is being frightened of him as well. That is, he is the judge of all. And so we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade. Now, we have a problem with the word we. We is a lovely word to use because it is so wonderfully ambiguous. Uh, it's the word that the autistic people will hate the most because you can never be sure precisely what is meant by the word we. Uh, It's the word of emotional intelligence because you kind of work out who is the we when we talk about we. Who are we talking about when we use the word we? We enjoyed the conference. 
Who's the we? Well, it must include me. We always includes me. Uh, it's some others, other than me, enjoyed it. We enjoyed the conference. I enjoyed the conference. So more than one person enjoyed it. Possibly you. Possibly not you. It might be Helen and I. We, we enjoyed the conference. You guys had a miserable time, but we enjoyed it, you see. Or, we enjoyed the conference till you came. <laughs> now there, clearly, there is the differentiation, isn't it, between the we who are us and the you. You are not in the we, in that one. Or, we enjoyed the conference till they came. Well, now you're with me on the enjoyment side, and but there are still those who are at the conference who didn't enjoy it, and in fact, well, they ruined our enjoyment of it. And we enjoyed the conference, didn't we? Is an invitation for you all to join the we in the enjoyment of the conference. The word we is such a rubbery word. And it's, it's, you, you've got to, you've got to work out with almost emotional intelligence who it is that he's been speaking of at any one particular time on the word we. We aim to persuade. Well, we are all going to appear under the judgment to seat of God, of Christ, rather, and therefore we aim to persuade. Well, you expect the we to be at that point, all of us who are going to be under that fear of the Lord. Yet, the verse goes on to spell out that it's not we, you see, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. So the we doesn't include From verse 10, you'd expect verse 11 to include the Corinthians. From the second half of verse 11, it's not the Corinthians that we're talking about. But the fear of the Lord leads Paul to the activity of persuasion. And evangelism is persuasion. If you look through Acts 17, 18, 19, where Paul is evangelising in Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus... In each of those places you'll find a whole string of words about arguing, persuading, reasoning uh, with people. For the activity is that. It's not just stating the truth. It's not walking around with a billboard, the end of the world is coming. It is persuading people that the end of the world is coming. It's reasoning with people. It's arguing and demonstrating and showing that the end of the world is coming, that Paul was engaged in as he declared and proclaimed, he reasoned and persuaded. And why does he evangelise? Well, because he knows the fear of the Lord. Because he knows everybody is going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, he wishes to persuade everybody to be right with God. He knows the reality of the resurrection life. He knows that there is an age to come as well as this age. And therefore, he seeks to persuade everybody. When you lose the sense of judgment, when you lose the sense of the world to come, when you only have this world, you will stop evangelising. But why? Why evangelise? If we've got paradise already, that is the end. If there is no future judgment and condemnation, what is the point of persuading anybody to give up the paradise of this life in order to live differently? It's because we see the unseen. See, the end of chapter 4, we don't lose heart. Our outer self is wasting away, etc. As we look, verse 18, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
We look to please the Lord, not only in this world, but in the world to come. Because our concerns are the world to come, not just this world. And in the light of the world to come and the judgment that's going to happen there, well, we seek to persuade everybody as we declare the great news of the Lord Jesus Christ and the coming of the world to come. And he tells them this because he wants to explain to them his motives, so that when people attack him and accuse him and say all bad things about him, the Corinthian Christians might know what makes Paul tick. Why is he doing what he is doing? Now, it enables them to give defence when they accuse him of being the mad apostle. Because his life looks mad. As does our life look mad. We give up safe, secure jobs in order to spend our time trying to persuade people about a world yet to come. It has a certain madness about it. Why don't you join with the rest of us? Make money, big build, build bigger houses than you could possibly need, have tiny little families with as few children as possible, and as many dogs as you can and you want, because the good thing about dogs is when you want an overseas trip, you can always put them down, but people don't like you putting your children down, so, you know, much better have dogs than children. And, and, and you, you, you can go on your overseas trips and you can become whatever, you, you can lie on the beach, all that. But why do what we do? From our world's perspective, what we do is mad. And from the world's perspective, what Paul did was certainly mad. Crazy. And yet, he keeps doing it. He's also being accused of mad because of what he believes. You remember when he appears before Festus in Acts chapter 26, Festus says, you're mad, your great learning is driving you mad because he believes in the resurrection from the dead. It's a madness. Well, Paul says, if we're mad, we're mad for God. But if we're sane, we're sane for you. The reason what I do, if you want a sane reason, is you. And so, in chapter 4, verse 5, he's explained himself as your slaves for Christ's sake, and now he explains it in verse 14, for Christ's love constrains us, controls us, hedges us in, hems us in, so we can, we can do no other. It's like the kind of the cattle tractor, the, the cattle rails that push the cattle up onto the, onto the, onto the truck or, or into the abattoir, you know, they just get narrower and narrower. No, there's nothing else the cattle can do but just keep moving along that one thing, especially as there's one coming up behind them. Christ's love constrains us such that there is nothing else that we can do. Hedges us in, controls us. And what is this love of Christ that so constrains and controls us? He says, well, because we have concluded, that's very interesting, most people think if it's Christ's love, he's going to feel it. He doesn't feel it, he concludes it. I have concluded that Christ loves me. I've thought it out, I've reasoned it, I've understood that Christ loves me. Because that is the nature of the love of Christ that he knows about. That is, one died for all, and therefore all died. It is an extraordinary statement, that one, verse 14, as an explanation of the gospel. There's some... Uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 4, 5, 6 very difficult passages to preach but there are some absolute purple verses absolutely memorable verses verse 14, verse 15 uh, verse 21 are some of the 
great passages of the Bible, great verses of the Bible, that mean the same thing out of context as they do in context. And the essence of a good memory verse is it means the same thing whether it's in context or out. That, that's the key of finding a good memory verse. These ones are good memory verses. But he's explaining Christ's love, and how do you explain Christ's love? Well, Christ died, and in his death I died. Because he died not his death, he died my death. So 2,000 years before I was born, I was dead. I'd already died in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is his love for me. And that is such an incredible substitutionary statement that is being made here. It's a, it's a great verse for seeing the nature of the substitution. That his death was my death so that I have already died in his death. And therefore, when the gospel comes, it challenges me to deny myself, take up my cross, follow him, to lose my life for his sake and for the gospels. And so I die in my repentance, but I am already dead in the death of Jesus. He's already dead. So my life was already one that was over in his death. Now, if you want to try and put it all together in your head logically, good luck to you. These are the images by which God explains what is happening in the great transaction by which he is reconciling the world to himself through the death of his son. And so we've concluded that that was God's love, Christ's love for me, in that while I'm still a sinner, Christ died for me, in my place, as my representative and as my substitute. You keep seeing on the football field the difference between representatives and substitutes, don't you? That is, the team is my representative. It plays for New South Wales. Of course, these days, professional sport, they don't play for anybody but breweries and things like that. <coughs> and theoretically, they're playing for New South Wales or Queensland or Australia. Uh, theoretically. Um, apparently, you know, the, the sportsman saying, if you're not willing to wear the beer, the beer logo on your shirt that is paying for you to play, then you're not fit for the team. Uh, and so you shouldn't play because really you're representing the brewery. Uh, but it's called the Australian team, but it's not really the Australian team, it's the 4X team or whatever brewery they're playing for. However, they are representing somebody, now, hopefully me. It's a representative game. But halfway through the game, they put on substitutes. Now, the substitutes are not representatives. The blokes who come off the bench are not representing the blokes who are already on the field. They're substituting for the blokes that are on the field. The Lord Jesus Christ is my representative and my substitute. He's both those. He takes my place when I cannot play the game, but he is also my representative, standing on my behalf in the game. He's both representative, which is most people accept. Most liberal scholars will even go for a record. But he's more than a representative. He's the substitute for me. And so he dies my death in my place for me. And so all have died. It's not just he died for Paul. It's all that we're talking of here. And so we no longer live for ourselves but for him who died for us and was raised. Verse 15, you see, is a wonderful explanation now of what our life is. For those 
who now live no longer live for themselves. I haven't died, in case you haven't noticed, I'm still alive here. I haven't died. I have died. I've died in Christ. I've died in my repentance. But I now continue to live. Okay, well in this now continuing to live life, what do I do? Well, I no longer live for myself, but for him who died for me and was raised again. Which is what he said back in chapter 5, verse 9, isn't it? What is my aim? My aim is to please him. But notice the assumption, the assumption of sinfulness, of living for myself. The nature of human life in sin is to live for yourselves. Well, Christ has died for myself, and I've denied myself in my repentance, and so now I can't go on living for myself. I deny myself, take up my cross, follow him, I've got to no longer live for myself, but I live for him. Now that's not Paul, uniquely. That's got to be Christians. This is fundamentally what a Christian is. Every Christian must have this experience, that we now live for him. Therefore, verse 16, from now on, we, you see the problem with this word we, don't you? Who is the we here? Is it Paul, or is it all Christians? And the answer is yes. From now on, we regard nobody, think about nobody, from the point of view of the world does. We now look at people as the world doesn't look at people. We now see people differently. For us, the most fundamental thing now is, are they in Christ or not in Christ? That is the, that is the big difference. Tall, short, irrelevance. Male, female, irrelevant. Barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, irrelevant. In Christ, out of Christ, what matters? And my children are very little. And, uh, we're trying to help them understand that not everybody was Christian and that there were non-Christians and there were Christians. And they came up with the phrase, Jesus person. And so they would ask us, is that a Jesus person? It was a very useful phrase because Christian is a word which is so filled with all kinds of baggage, isn't it? Whereas a Jesus person, well, it's got nothing to do with morality. It's got to do with are they a Jesus person or not? And so, and it suited us because most people didn't know what we were talking about. And so we were able to say, no, he's not a Jesus person. It also became a form of uh, child evangelism. They went up to people and said, are you a Jesus person? Uh, which uh, was an interesting form of child evangelism that they kept us on visitors to our house. But it's a good way of talking. Rather than talking about a Christian, talk about a Jesus person because that's in the end what we are, isn't it? Uh, there was a, a great Australian who became a missionary in South Africa and wound up being a bishop in uh, South Africa. Uh, and who lived to a great age. Uh, I remember him visiting Australia as he came home many times and uh, he was asked in the height of the, the, the real problems of, uh, of the racism of South Africa, uh, about South Africa everywhere, people would ask him questions. He's an Australian who's lived 30, 40 years in South Africa. He, he will be able to help us understand what's happening as the country's tearing itself apart. And uh, he... He understood, he knew what the problems were, but he also thought Christianly and, and wanted to help people understand Christianity. And so his constant answer was, yes, the problem with South Africa is there are two kinds of people, the haves and the have-nots. There are those who have Christ and those who have not got Christ. That's the problem. Um, terribly offensive way of describing the racial complexities of South Africa. 
But on the other hand, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, isn't it? We don't look at people the way everybody else looks at people. There is a bigger problem at stake that we need to see and we need to understand people rightly as being in Christ or out of Christ. So, the life we now live regards, according to the flesh, something quite different. We're not impressed the way the world is impressed. We don't judge by the externals, the beauty, the wealth, the power, the athleticism. Oh, brothers and sisters, we keep doing it, don't we? But we mustn't. God looks not on the externals, but the internal. And we've now seen the internal. We, we now must judge people not on what looks from the outside, but what looks from the inside. We must seek to reach people on the basis of them being sinful creatures who can be reborn by the Spirit of God, whoever they are, and rejoice in them. And so, we now see that what matters is being born again, being new creation from God. It's, it's part of the slippage of evangelicalism that we have moved away from regeneration as a principal uh, form of our evangelism. It, it's an interesting slippage that has happened. Um, you see, the Reformation of the 16th century was about justification by faith alone. But the evangelical revival of the 18th century was about being, about being born again, about regeneration. And so... In the Reformation, you were dealing with whole countries, whole communities, whole cantons or villages or cities, moving from Catholicism to Protestantism. And they did it as a group. And it's it mystifying to us. You know, uh, Henry VII is a Roman Catholic, England is Roman Catholic. Henry VIII becomes National Catholic. Edward VI becomes Protestant. And so each time it happens, the nation goes in, the whole country's Protestant. Then comes along Mary I, and the whole country's Roman Catholic. And then comes along Elizabeth I, and the whole country's Protestant again. And so the country goes with the king, and you think, yeah, but what about individual believers? Now, within that, there were individual believers. They were the ones that got burnt at the stake. And, but the country just shifted. There's a great uh, poem about uh, the vicar of Bray, who just kept changing all the time, with the changing of the... And it's, made, it's a fun poem about how this clergyman, the vicar of Bray, just changed his religion according to who was in power. What's it all about? The 18th century is much more the individualism. You must be born again. That's what the great message was. And it was about regeneration, about rescuing the perishing. Whereas we are persuading people to agree to, to be... We don't talk about... Even becoming Christian is less and less part of the phrase. We just want people to be committed to Christ uh, rather than that they're going to be regenerated, they're going to be reborn. Uh, now, the phrase being born again, of course, has been sullied by American televangelists and by American politicians, uh, which is a sadness because it's a Jesus phrase. But the confrontation of people that actually the way you are living is so completely wrong that you have to be born all over again the call for a, a, a change of that magnitude is not the kind of evangelism. You know, believing, belonging, will lead you to believing. Well, where does regeneration fit into that process? I mean, it's, it's a different mindset. 
that is being put before us here. We want the new creatures in Christ Jesus. And so our ministry, our evangelism, is to bring reconciliation. Because in Christ, God was reconciling, verse 19, restoring friendship, making compatible again, reconciling the world to himself. How? By not counting trespasses and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. That is, it's a two-stage activity. He's not counting the trespasses, but he's actually sending out a message. Come back to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Jesus, resurrected, appears to two people on the road to Emmaus, and disappears. They go to the 11 apostles and those who are with them up in the upper room. We don't know who was there in the upper room. Might have been the whole 120 of the day of Pentecost were there. And Jesus shows himself to them, uh, eats fish because they don't believe that he's, you know, he's resurrected. He says, reach out, touch my hands, and he takes fish and eats it before them. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets of the Psalms must be fulfilled. The little Greek word day, must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should, the should carries with it the same uh, necessity as day, that the should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should, again the same grammatical force, be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. God's plan from all history, before history, Predicted through the prophets is that two things. One, Christ should suffer, die and rise again. And two, the message of reconciliation be preached to the nations. It was never going to end with Christ's resurrection. It always involved the proclamation of the gospel. I mean, if Christ died and rose and went back to to be with his father, sat at the right hand of his father, and no one ever told anybody about it ever again, guess who would be forgiven? It's not just, he died for me, but in my repentance, I must die to me as well. It calls for my response of repentance, does the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that calls upon me to be reconciled to God on the basis of the reconciliation that he has won for me in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, the preaching of the gospel, the declaration of the gospel, is as essential to the plans and purposes of God as is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so, the reconciling work of God, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. The ambassador, of course, only ever represents the view of the government. He's not allowed to represent his own views. He's got to represent the view of the government. That's his role. And so God is representing his views to the world by us, his ambassadors. And we implore, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
Now at this point, my dear brothers and sisters, and especially my fellow preachers, you must keep reading your Greek. And if you haven't got it, you need to go to college and get it. You need your Greek because you can't trust your translators. They are trying to help us and they do a wonderful job. But unfortunately, they think they know more than they do. And that leads them into all kinds of errors which then leads us into all kinds of errors because we don't... You see, in verse 20, that word you is not there in the Greek. The only translations I know that are right in this phrase, the Holman has it right, and the uh, and Dar, I think, has it right. They're the only ones. Every other translation has the word you there. Now, I'm not the greatest Greek scholar under the world, but I can see whether a word is there or it's not there, and I tell you, it's not there. It, it's, it, you know, this is not rocket science Greek here. It just is not there. Does it make any difference? Yeah, it makes a huge difference. It difference to the whole understanding of the passage. Now, uh, you can follow it in an argument in the commentary by P. E. Hughes on 2 Corinthians, which is most likely out of print these days, but uh, that's where you'll find it. The other commentators all struggle with the meaning of this verse. Uh, they all acknowledge the word used not there, but they can't understand it. That's why people put it in, because they don't understand it. What you should do when you don't understand something is change your understanding not change the text. That's a, I was taught this by an old rabbi once who said to me he hated the RSV translation. He said, because down at the bottom it keeps on saying the Hebrew is obscure. And he said, the Hebrew is never obscure. The translator's mind, it's obscure. <laughs> but the Hebrew is completely plain. Don't blame the text because your mind doesn't understand it. And he went on and on. And he was right. It is a problem, but we, we want to... We want to. God's message for the world today is be reconciled to me. I have paid the price. It's an amnesty. You know, an amnesty, you have a gun amnesty, you have a library amnesty. The library is saying, I don't care how long you've had the book, you don't have to explain why it is that you've needed it to keep your dining room kitchen, kitchen table up. I don't care how much coffee spilt over it, return it, no questions asked. You don't have to pay any fine. The gun amnesty after Port Arthur massacre, just bring back the bazookas. You don't have to explain where you got a bazooka, or why you have a bazooka, or how you've been using your bazooka. Just bring it back and no questions asked, we'll get rid of your bazooka for you. That's an amnesty. God is declaring his amnesty. Now is the moment to be reconciled to God. Now, how does the message of the amnesty get out? Through his ambassadors. His ambassadors' message is, be reconciled to God. Paul is not calling on the Corinthians to be reconciled to God because they have already been reconciled to God. They are Christians. That's why he's not writing, be you, you be reconciled to God. doesn't need to say that. And if you think he's saying that, you won't understand the next couple of verses, you see, which then takes you off the line. You miss the point of what the passage is about. Our work as ambassadors for Christ is to send the message out, now is the hour, now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to be reconciled to God. Before Christ died, you couldn't be. Now Christ has died, you can be. 
Before the amnesty was declared, you had to pay for your, your, your library books. And you'd be put in prison for owning a bazooka. But now, now's the reconciliation open. Bring your bazooka back, no questions. Bring your library books back, no fine. Jesus has died, now is the moment of reconciliation. Our job is to get out there and tell people, you can go back to God now. You turn back to God now, full, complete, free forgiveness. Your trespasses will not be counted against you because the Lord Jesus Christ has died and in his death is your death. Therefore, come back now. Now is the moment. Now is the day of salvation. And that is the message. We implore on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See how the you changes. He's not telling them to do anything. He's telling them about what we do. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin, him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 21 is just a wonderful verse, isn't it? Which I won't unpack for you now. It's just such a magnificent verse of the Gospel. But it is explaining, verse 20, because it's explaining the day of reconciliation has come. What God has done to make reconciliation possible is made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that we could now be the righteousness of God. So verse 21 is explaining the reconciliation that we are declaring in verse 20. Working together, therefore, with him, that is with God, although with him is not there in the Greek either, working together with him, we appeal to you. Now, this one, the you is there. So here the we and the you is being distinguished. We now are appealing to you, Corinthians, what? Not to receive the grace of God in vain. They have received the grace of God. They are reconciled to God in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they mustn't receive it in vain. Because as the scripture says, in a favourable time I've listened to you, in a day of salvation I've helped you. Now my dear brothers and preachers and fellow preachers, when the Old Testament is quoted, look up the Old Testament. Don't say, oh yes, that's in the Old Testament. Don't just look at the cross-reference and say, oh yeah, that's, that's Isaiah 49. Read it. And when you go back and read Isaiah 49, don't read Isaiah 49 verse, I think it's 6 or something like that. Don't read that verse. Read the chapter. What's the chapter of Isaiah 49 about? Well, it's one of the songs of the suffering servant. And it's a very interesting song of the suffering servant because the suffering servant says it's too small a thing. I've been preaching and preaching repentance to a nation that is not going to repent. And I am running in vain. Oh, the little word vain. Very important. By, by the way, it's in Galatians chapter 1 too. It's a very important thing about Paul. And Galatians 2, whether Paul was running in vain. It's an allusion back to Isaiah 49. And God says to the, to the servant, it's, it's too small a thing for you to call Israel to repentance, who is not repenting. I'm going to send you to the nations and I'm going to give a new age in the nations, a new day, a day of salvation, a favourable time, a salvation time, when the nations will turn back. You will be a light to the ends of the world and the nations will come in. That is, the hardening of Israel, which rejects the message, is going to be transformed into the opening up of the nations to accept the message. That's the verse he's talking about. You see, you, got, you, you read the chapter and then you start to see why he thought of that verse. That verse is not just saying 
that verse. He's saying, remember to Isaiah 49. Now what Isaiah 49 is about, but we don't remember Isaiah 49. We've got to look it up, haven't we? But that's all right, we look it up. But we look up all of Isaiah 49, just not the verse that's there. When Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, read Psalm 22. All of them. Not just verse 1. All of Psalm 22. That's the psalm that Jesus was meditating upon when he was crucified. And so each of the allusions of the New Testament, quotes of the New Testament, are quotes to the chapter, not just to the verse. Here is a classic. Because that chapter is about the new day of salvation when God will send the message of reconciliation to the ends of the world. And his servants must not run in vain. For that is the time. Now is the moment. And so, when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ, you must realise that your work in the Lord will not be... Can you remember the verse? Not the in vain. Which verse is that? 1 Corinthians 15 and the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15. The great chapter on the resurrection finishes up with saying, remember that your work in the Lord will not be in vain. And what is the work of the Lord? It's not plumbing. It's not dentistry. it's, it's It's preaching the gospel, building the church. Uh, Thamelios is a, a, a journal that I think you must like, you can get on the web somewhere. Uh, a brilliant, let, uh, brilliant article has been written in just uh, this last by a man, um, uh, is it Peter Orr, uh, who's just going to Moore College as a New Testament lecturer, but who's down in Melbourne at the moment, if I remember correctly. Uh, he's written a really fine essay on what is the meaning of the work of the Lord. It is evangelising and building the church. That is the work of the Lord. That work will not be in vain on the last day. That work will stand into eternity in the last day. Really important, my brothers and sisters, because the evangelicals are being persuaded now through post-millennialism, through the influence of of, uh, of, uh, Mr. Keller and, and the influence of liberalism, which is not Mr. Keller, but the influence of that, that any work you do is the work of the Lord. But what we're doing now goes on into eternity, that the opera house will stand in eternity, that the harbour bridge will stand in eternity, that the concert playing, that the the music that you write will stand into eternity, whereas the Bible talks about the end of this world and the creation of a new world. And what goes on into eternity is the work of the Lord. It's the people saved and transformed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, not the work that you are doing in in your tent making. The tent will not be there in eternity. And if the opera house is the best thing that God can create, then heaven is going to be pretty second rate. I mean, the acoustics don't even work. (laughs) You know, you'd hope that something better than the opera house would be available to us in heaven. The new heavens and the new creation, it's something more than the continuation of this world. Tom Wright's also part of this kind of movement that people have, that we've got to live for the unseen, not the seen. And when we appear before the judgment seat of the Lord, what will be seen is what we have done in the life as Christians. And so don't accept the grace of the Lord to live a life of vanity, vanity, all is vanity, says the Lord. That would be a terrible thing.
to stand on the last day with nothing for the 40, 50 years that God has given you in Christ Jesus to be served. Now is the time. So why evangelise? Let's return to that question, Will. Because that's the plans and purposes for God for this present age. This is the age of evangelism. That's the one we're living in. If you're living in the age of evangelism, why do you want to play rugby league? I mean, I don't mind people wanting to... Well, I do mind. But whenever people want to kind of talk about the great things of humanity that are going to be redeemed for the future, I always say, you mean rugby league? I've noticed it's always art and craft and, and music and, and but if it's those, why not rugby league? And they say, no, that, that doesn't need re- that needs more than redemption. <laughs> now is the moment of salvation. Now is the age of reconciliation. Now is the time when God is sending out his message of reconciliation. Why evangelise? Because Christ's actions require it of me. And because we've been saved to do it. That's why. I want you to spell that out. Do you see how stupid the question is, who should do it? If you understand what God is doing in this world, if you understand what Christ has done for you, if you understand the lostness of people without Christ, and you understand, how can you not? It doesn't make sense. The question doesn't make sense. Well, do you want those questions make comments?